the quality of the firm is represented more so by the quality of the person who represents you. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. We've got another long interview here today. We've got uh, Mike McClenahan from Benefits by Design, which is a third-party benefits administrator. And you'll hear Mike and I cover a ton of ground. This topic will be interesting to group benefits people, but I think also good for those on the individual side. We cover some technology questions, some business building questions. It's quite a broad-reaching discussion. This session will be good for accident and sickness credits in Alberta. It'll be good for life insurance credits in all other jurisdictions. It'll be good for financial planning credits for FP Canada, IAS approved, and no IROC credits for this episode. The color for today's episode is blue. The color for today's episode is blue. Okay, let's hear from Mike. Right, I'm joined today by Mike McClenahan. Those of you who are active in the group benefits side will know Mike. He is the founder and principal at Benefits by Design, or BBD. He's going to talk a little bit about what BBD is momentarily. Can you give us a little bit of background? How did you get started with BBD, Mike? Yeah, yeah. A little clarification. My, my partner, Ron, was the founder, so I wouldn't want him to listen to this and go, oh, <laughs> all the credit. Take his credit? All right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I didn't know that, actually. Yeah. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I've been partners now for well over 20 years. So, anyhow. Uh, so, my start in the, the business and benefits by design, um, so, well, of course, uh, Jason, it was always a dream graduating from university to, you know, get into the insurance industry, like most of our advisor friends. Um, and, uh, so I went to UBC commerce degree, marketing, et cetera. And as I got closer to graduation and realized I wasn't going to get the, uh, madman advertising executive job or what have you, my marketing prof, a wonderful lady by the name of Catherine Vertesi, uh, actually, well, I've had a few students go on and work for an organization called London life and seemed to do quite well. And so needless to say, when the other job offers didn't come flooding in, uh, I ended up joining London Life, which was a great experience in their employee benefits division. Uh, spent about seven years there, part in Halifax, part in Kingston, Ontario. Um, and it was actually when I moved to Kingston, which is where I met my uh, my business partner, Ron. He was also London Life at the time, but he, he left shortly after, moved to Vancouver, and actually at that point was involved in the mutual fund industry. But long story short, an opportunity came to him to actually acquire Benefits by Design or the, the previous company in 96. Um, but he was still focused on that mutual fund side of the business, but remembered me, remembered I was from Vancouver. And probably at some point when he and I were both in Kingston, it expressed to him, I'd want to get back to Vancouver one day. And, you know, one thing led to another and uh, Great West Life, of course, came in and bought London Life. It would have been the fall of 97, as I recall. And that opened up some additional opportunities for me to make the transition. February 98, packed my bags, as it were, and drove across the country and joined Benefits by Design. Perfect. And I know the group benefits people listening will know this well, but can you give us a rundown as to just what a TPA, which Benefits by Design, is? Hmm. Yep. Sort of like the definition part. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting, Jason, like there isn't really a singular definition for a third party administrator. And one of my roles, as you know, is I'm in the president position at uh, TPAC, the third party administrators association of Canada. Uh, if you ever join, I'd say, don't miss a meeting. They make you president. So uh, <laughs> uh, just kidding. Wonderful group of people. 
Uh, and so there is quite a diversity even within TPAC of the different types and distribution models and customer bases and so on. Um, but in benefits by designs case, I'd say we're almost a, a hybrid or combination of a third party administrator and an MGA or managing general agent. And the reason I say that is certainly at our core, we have the administrative capabilities uh, as, the, as a TPA would. Um, but from a distribution standpoint, uh, in fact, we, we like to refer to ourselves as an administered benefits agency, with the idea being that administration benefits is, is what we do. And the agency part, which uh, implies that, because it's true, we work through independent group focused advisors across the country. Um, not that we need more acronyms, but in the U.S., probably almost a better one they use down there is what's called an MGU or a Managing General Underwriter. As the other piece for us is uh, we have proprietary products where we hold the pen on the underwriting side. Don't bear risk. DPAs don't bear risk um, and partner with insurers, but you know they extend that underwriting capacity to us. So that's how I describe it. So you would set rates on those proprietary products, for example? Yeah, within the underwriting box that the insurer gives us. So as an example, if let's say you were Jason's widget manufacturing with 10 employees, um, of course your widgets are educational, um, and you were wanting uh, an employee benefits plan for your employees for the first time, and you approached us through one of those advisors, uh, yeah, we wouldn't have to go to the insurers to quote or get the rates. It's all done um, internally um, based on our, our block and our underwriting provisions. And generally speaking, we can do that up to about uh, 150 or 200 employee size groups. Um, and then beyond that, we will consult with the partner insurer on rating and appropriateness of plan design and so on. And the uh, TPA thing, going back to the TPAs, plenty of the TPAs that I know really would exist primarily to, let's say, administer health spending accounts. That would be like a whole other type of TPA from what BBD is, right? Yeah, yeah. And as you know, it gets blurry at times, not in a bad way, um, you know, because you've got some organizations out there who are claims adjudicators, whether TPA or otherwise, who aren't um, structurally an insurance company, um, but almost in the marketplace behave much more like an insurer or a, or a supplier, like a couple of good examples, like Claim Secure would be a good example. They're not an insurer, um, uh, but they very much market their programs and services. In fact, we partner with them on some benefit lines uh, through third-party administrators, as well as directly through through advisors as well. Um, but and the other dynamic you see is some third-party administrators. Uh, are both administration, claims paying, and distribution. So they may have the advice component uh, in-house as well. Whereas organizations like ours, we don't do any of the advice piece. We leave that to the partner advisors that we work with. Um, and then you have some that are, are very specialized and hyper-focused in certain industry spaces. So one of our larger uh, TPAC members is OTIP or the Ontario Teachers Insurance Plan. And they, in essence, have uh, one customer, um, albeit different um, districts and all this sort of thing, but it's Ontario teachers. I feel like I need one of those wall-sized bulletin boards with the pictures, the pins, the string, like you see mm. in spy movies to track all of these relationships. It seems like there's so many different possible iterations of this and so many different relationships that you would maintain. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting too because you know one of the areas where this has come up in the past, especially with our work at TPAC, is when we're uh, in front of or working with regulators. Um, and uh, there was an interesting story, as you may know, it's now it's a couple of years ago, um, but Saskatchewan is the first jurisdiction in Canada that actually created a TPA and an MGA licensing requirement, um, and you know. We, TPAC has been uh, an active stakeholder with uh, various regulatory bodies for, for years, but one of the common questions we would get from them is things like, how many third-party administrators are there in Canada? You know, and so this education process, well, that depends how you define a TPA kind of discussion would occur. And so the interesting part about Saskatchewan, lovely people, I'm married to a lady from Saskatchewan, so I'm not just saying that, that they're lovely because I'm married to one, they are. 
shirt off your back kind of people. Uh, that whole Rough Riders thing is another story, but we'll, we won't go there. You can leave that alone. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But uh, so when they created this license, you know, notionally the thought was, okay, there are these entities that aren't under the insurance regs. And so therefore we have to create a requirement and then regulate. Uh, and what we determined when we consulted with the regulators is at least as far as TPAC members were concerned who operate in Saskatchewan, it didn't apply because all of us have what are what's called agency licensing. So just like an advisor, they had a firm in Saskatchewan, they would have their own personal insurance license plus their, their agency license for their corp. And so they didn't want to create um, dual licensing. So we all still remain under the agency license and the TPA license, strangely enough, doesn't apply to us. Interesting. It's an interesting outcome, eh? Is it, is it intended or that just sort of was a common sense response to, to the legislation, maybe not, be, or the, I guess, regulation in that case, not contemplating the, the reality on the ground? Yeah. And, and I think I, I learned a lot through this process of sort of, you know, how the laws come to be and then, you know, the bodies that handle the regulations. And I think it was a, I wouldn't call it a disconnect. I think the, the intentions are very good, but the legislators, because this all came, it wasn't just by itself. They rewrote their entire insurance act. So it was part of that whole um, larger process. Um, and then when it made its way down to, in this case, the insurance council of Saskatchewan and the regulators who just, again, wonderful people to work with. Um, and we're back and forth with them and we're trying to seek out all these definitions and, you know, what in essence they were looking for, and it may exist, but is a third party administrator who doesn't sell. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. You know, I mean, I guess that's possible. You could have an organization that does all the selling, the advice work, you know, customer service, et cetera, with the, uh, the policyholder, but then they outsource the administration to a pure, you know, TPA type of model. Um, I don't, I honestly, I, I don't know. In April, if you're listening, she's the lovely regulator that we work with. Um, if they found anybody to whom it applies, but that was the interesting outcome. That is interesting. I feel like I could probably go on their website and have a look. I, I know they list the MGAs. So, yeah, certainly that had more, from what I understand, applicability. Uh, the MGA license, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, just talking about what BBD does and the services you offer, can you talk a little bit about how you help the, the brokers that you deal with? What sort of services you offer? What a broker should look for when they're dealing with, with a firm like yours? Uh, sure. Yeah. And I would say, you know, what might help from a context standpoint is if I give a uh, something of a description of, you know, what our, say, targeted, but ideal customer looks like from an advisor partner. Um, and so one is that they are group focused, uh, not necessarily group exclusive, because that's more of a rare uh, breed. Um, but our model isn't designed to be such that it's a high handholding type of approach. Again, we very much um, want the advice role to be served by the advisor or the consultant. Um, you know, that said, and maybe what I can do is sort of differentiate a little bit in terms of the answer to your question as it relates to, you know, an experienced advisor in the employee benefits space and perhaps someone who's, you know, beginning to focus in that area. Because as much as I might say, you know, the ideal is a group focused advisor. Well, everybody who's in that position today sold their first group at some point. <laughs> They're just not magically born as group experts. Neither was I. Um, so maybe what I'll do is I'll comment first on the more experienced advisor. Perfect. Yeah. Practice over a period of years and develop the technical competencies and so on. Um, and I would say in those cases, um, and we're competing with you know the big carriers for attention and shelf space and so on. Uh, but where benefits by design and by extension, the third party administration model tends to fit is um, solving for complexity. I would say is probably the the, the primary uh, role, and you'll often hear uh, TPAs say that uh, one of the sort of value props is uh, being able to facilitate a best-in-class model. So you know, and the big insurers are are big for a reason. 
you know, there are a variety of reasons, but, you know, distribution and other competencies. And, but they, you know, tend to want to build a fence and have all of the customer. And if I was them, I would probably want the same thing. Um, but what we tend to do is to say, okay, advisor, group focus advisor, if we can empower your advice by separating administration and product from that advice, it sort of takes away that, that handcuffs, if you will, um, that don't need to exist. So I'll give you a specific example. Um, I would say for certain products like say critical illness, there are, uh, we're big fans of that as a, as a benefit, but again, we don't do the advice piece. Um, and there are specialty underwriters in that field who have some programs and products that I would stand up against sort of the bolt-on products of some of the big insurers. Well, if I'm the advice giver now as the consultant and I have access to that, but an organization like ours exists to say, well, we can empower that advice, but not lead your customer being more um, cumbersome or complicated from an administration, billing, enrollment, all those sorts of things. And there's numerous examples of that. So I would say, um, that's an advantage uh, of the value that we can bring to the table. Um, we have some very large multi-employer association plans that, that exist in that sort of um, space. Uh, the other thing, and, and this is almost not a, an ovation or a sales pitch to those insurers, but as a result of that arrangement, often the insurer partners see us as an opportunity, a bit of a, a petri dish almost at times, to uh, try some of these programs within uh, the market space, you know, at the end of the day, um, because we do have the ability to, you know, put through offerings uh, and so on, sort of on mass at times. Again, with you know the understanding and blessing of the advisors, but that kind of thing as well. So that that's the more experienced advisor um, scenario. The individuals who are developing, because we. See huge opportunity in this this market um, bias, but in a good way. Uh, and uh, big fans of education, and it comes in you know multi pronged um, strategies and efforts. So a specific example, a little over a year ago, when we still could all get together, um, we uh, put on a session in Toronto. It was actually hosted at the Empire Life Office, who are one of our our main partners. And uh, the focus was for advisors who were less than three years in their business. So a slight context to this, it didn't mean that they you know, were only in the employee benefits field for three years or less. So I can think of one lady, for example, she spent quite a few years uh, as a, an advisor as part of another firm, but then a year or so before that, you know, courageously leapt out on her own to start her own practice. And so we didn't just bring presentations to that session that were about you know, target loss ratios and other technical stuff in our business. That's it's important to know, but um, so we had one fella business coach there, a fellow named John Colota, who we've used for years. And he actually facilitated sessions that were more about like, how do you build your business? Right? Um, not just you know, the technical stuff. We had an advisor by the name of Chad, who's been a good partner of ours for years. He was actually our first sales rep many years ago in, in Ontario. And he's now built a very successful practice, but he very transparently shared the, you know, the scar tissue and the challenges and, you know, those sort of, I wish somebody had told me this <laughs> five years ago comments, you know, with the group. So, so th that kind of session, but it was very targeted at, at those newer um, advisors. It's great. And I see now there are lots of education events out there on the group benefit space. Um, but it's such a, there, there's so much to learn. Honestly, I, I see this on the uh, Canadian group insurance brokers forums. I'm, I'm not a group guy myself, Mike, and I follow those forums and I learn every day. And I just am impressed with the, the incredible breadth of knowledge that the uh, brokers that uh, participate there have. It's, it just seems like you could be learning every day. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Glad you brought up uh, CJB and uh, Dave Patriarch's organization. I would say, uh, hopefully, he listens to this at some point. But um, yeah, shameless plug. I, I should have. I actually just joined myself, probably only oh three four months ago. And as you know, they've got that great Slack channel where there's it's like group insurance Wikipedia. <laughs> it really is. It's very impressive. Yeah, and great community. So just going back to your time at, uh, at London Life back in the day, I guess. So, and it's funny because you mentioned this with Chad too. You say, Chad, this broker you just talked about, cut his teeth at Benefits by Design. You have the same background as, I guess, an account executive at London Life. I'm not sure exactly what the role would have been, but. Yeah, sales rep kind of thing. Yeah. Our industry loves to give fancy titles to things that are basically sales. <laughs> so. Uh, just going back to your time as an account executive, or I guess a sales rep at London Life on the group side, and you talked about uh, Chad, your uh, former employee, now broker who's out selling your product. And it, you know, I always look at that time, you see so many people who are successful today who cut their teeth in that role. Uh, you must pay a lot of attention to, to what your folks who are doing that type of job do. You specifically said before, no handholding. It's not a handholding type of job. But can you talk a little bit about the role that those account executives fill or that your sales team fills when they're out dealing with those brokers? Yeah, for sure. And, and so a key distinction to what I did in my London Life days, that was I sold directly to the end employer, which our, our team does not do. Um, and those were the old agency system captive, you know, one product and it said London Life. Uh, great training, mind you. So it, in our case, it's a little nuanced by, again, where that advisor is and what their needs are. You know, the more experienced advisor, we're, you know, you're probably trying to, to some degree, disturb an existing relationship, you know, in your efforts to gain some shelf space and why us kind of stuff. And you got to earn that over time. You know, um, you know, experienced people, they've seen a lot of group reps come and go, whether, you know, from our company or others. So you got to, Put in your time, but also show the value. Like we're big fans. One of the, the trainings we do with our team is a fantastic um, book out there called The Challenger Sale. Which I'm not sure if you've heard of it before, but I don't know it. No. Yeah, just very good background. It's, it's not specific to our industry. Uh, it's it's sales related. What they did was a, a study. It was actually coming off the, the last big um, economic crisis, the 2008-2009 um, downturn, and they studied different sales styles and which were more or less effective, especially in challenging economic times. And there's things like the lone wolf and the relationship person, and there's a whole series of them. But the most effective is the challenger. And in essence, what the challenger does, that's distinct from the others, is the challenger teaches the customer something unique about their business, about the customer's business that they don't fully appreciate that will help them you know, grow their own business and so on and so forth. So it's less about, look at the wonderful things on my shelf. It's more about getting a good understanding of the customer, their needs. And you know, so this isn't revolutionary, but you know, I, I find today's uh, style of group rep, and there's many good ones out there, but they tend to be more in an order taking position, right? Here's my specs for my quote, please send me the quote. The good ones, go that step further. And again, challenge, you know, and other things. Um, so, and then along with that, certainly the education pieces that we've, we've talked about. Um, so at the end of the day, um, I would say your, our organization's reputation and view in the marketplace is as strong as those individuals. And I was chatting with an advisor just yesterday, he called me to catch up and there was some tactical question he had that I'm sure um, somebody else in our organization could have handled, but I still love getting those calls. And, and he was reminiscing actually about three um, BBD sales reps earlier, you know, and, and the quality of the people and a couple of those people are now on to, you know, bigger roles within other organizations or their own firms. And so that, that always gives me, uh, you know, sort of a great smile, as it were, to know that, you know, we've helped in some small way and, you know, building the industry as well. It's, it's true. You sort of end up with this, uh, like the, uh, the NFL coaching tree type of thing. I know you were a 
soccer guy, not an American football guy, right? But it's that same idea, right? You just propagate yourself through the industry that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the cutest story of that was, because Dave will listen to this at some point, Petrish. I was I remember a number of years ago, I'm, I'm like leaning, you've been to his events before, and he's always at the back, right? Leaning against the wall, of course, hardly inconspicuous with the microphone. And whatever session was going on and, you know, he's sort of scanning the room and I'm standing right beside him. And he goes, Mike, I really have to thank you. Right. And I said, for what? <laughs> he said, well, if it wasn't for you, if I look around at all the existing and XBBD staff here, you know, we'd be a lot lower in participation. <laughs> he was being somewhat cheeky, but yeah. It's always, a, you always have to be a little careful with Dave, right? Always. <laughs> yeah. But it's true. And that, I mean, that does speak to the, that, education approach you talked about that I'm sure that challenger approach ties into that as well that's you know that, that's uh, I think something to be looked on fondly that you have all those folks still kind of waving the flag out there right wearing the socks as it were so you talked before about sort of building these sort of offering where advisors can come to BBD and get this this package that you've essentially built already where it has like this critical illness insurance this long-term disability plan, this life and AD&D plan, right? That type of thing. And you mentioned specifically a relationship with at least one insurer with Empire here. So how much of your role and how important is this where you're maintaining these relationships with these insurers? Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? Yeah, sure. And we do very much regard them as proprietary um, products or programs, Um, again, without us bearing the risk. So uh, in the smaller mid-sized market, we would have three or four main partners. So Empire, I mentioned, they handle our life and disability products. Uh, Greenshield Canada, we've had a relationship with for whew, uh, over 20 years now. Um, and Health and Dental, that's, that's all they do. Um, they do it well. And then Industrial Alliance is more of our special risk underwriter for things like the critical illness and AD&D and some other creative insurance products. Uh, and then the other one I put in there, they're not insured, but um, Humanicare, um, who are our partner for employee assistance program and second opinion um, uh, products. So if you come to us in that sort of smaller mid-sized market, those are going to be the insurers that will provide the um, solutions and risk for the appropriate um, programs. And as I mentioned earlier, so we don't need to go over that again. So that aspect of holding the pen so it creates uh, efficiencies for those organizations. Um, so as an example, a, a green chill, let's say, would look at us as a single large customer with, I think it's probably around 3,500 accounts, because those would be the number of participating employer policyholders under um, that program. And the advantages, there's certain practical things that allows us to do, there's scale, there's volume, that comes into play that allows us to compete um, with the the big insurers you know, when you measure expenses and target loss ratios and things along those lines. Um, the other thing you can do, and this can be a double-edged sword, admittedly, is let's say, for example, um, we decided based on market feedback and so on, um, and I'll give you an example from many years ago, um, when the whole generic drug thing really started taking off and cliff and all that terminology. And that's now at least 10 years old. Um, a lot of the big insurers, what they would have to do is go group to group to group through advisor and say, this is good. This is good. This is good. You know, does your customer want to do it? Well, and it was good, but complacency has a way of leading to some degree of inaction. Uh, we regarded that one, it may be the Buckley's analogy to some degree, although I don't think it really tasted bad. Um, but that sort of, you know, it might taste bad a little bit, but it's good for you kind of thing. So the decision we came to is to say like, this is important and consulted with Green Shield and so on. We are just going to make the change on mass across the 3000 plus, um, policyholders. So they all benefit from the downstream, uh, cost impact. Um, there has been times, and again, Dave would call me out on this one. He, he loves telling this story of where we, we thought, okay, that's great. And it was a little thing like dental scaling years ago where our program was too generous, like nobody was getting the number of units that were in the plan. So we did it, but off anniversary, like not at renewal and got called out on it. And 
you know, after some back and forth with a few advisors went, yeah, you're right. <laughs> we got to pull that back and then, you know, deal with the communication. So you, you can be a little too quick to pull the trigger though sometimes too. And that adds a, uh, I don't want to go down that tangent, but a big issue today with a lot of um, insurers at times making on mass policy changes, sometimes off anniversary and the, the challenges that can create. But anyway, that's a separate topic. I mean, it's an interesting topic unto itself. I saw an off anniversary change show up today that seems like it adds benefits, but you don't know what else you're getting with those hmm. off anniversary changes, right? And of course, if it adds benefits, does it add costs? All that goes along with that, right? Yes. I get the complexity there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't envy the group providers because I know it's complicated. You have this thing you want to offer. You know it's an improvement for most clients, but it, does everybody regard it that way? It does actually make everything better? Natural friction that has always existed, always will, between distributor, advisor, and manufacturer. Uh, I was on a panel conversation last week with some much smarter people than me, but like Jim Virtue, who's uh, uh, heads up PPI as an MGA, and then also a senior person with Canada Life. And this was part of our conversation, you know, that, that forever in a day question of who owns the customer and, you know, how that answer drives behavior and, and other things. I think it is a good question about, and I think it's something a, a group rep should pay attention to, right, is who ultimately owns that relationship. Yeah. Well, I think the interesting question is, and I, this panel, we, I think we were all actually in agreement on it. When you ask the question, who owns the customer? Well, none of us. Customer owns the customer. Yeah. <laughs> really? Right? And if yeah. you spend too much time, like, sort of gnawing your teeth over how dare that manufacturer do X versus focusing on who's in the mirror and being better and adding value to your customers, then you're probably going to make yourself um, you know, somewhat irrelevant down the road. So. We actually had a, I had a group class yesterday, a different group, and they uh, all group brokers, and we even had a dispute about who is the customer. That actually, that is a very good question. Yeah, yeah, it's not such a simple thing in the in the group side, especially where is it the shareholders? Is it the corporation? Is it the plan administrator? Yeah, well, it's it you say it because we've developed this is something. Uh, it wasn't COVID driven, but sort of some internal strategy work we've been doing around that exact question. And, you know, words are important, um, you know, and the idea of oversimplifying it, I think people would say the customer is the employer is, you know, a company name, something like that. Okay. Well, company is not a person. It is a legal entity, of course, but, and so who is the plan administrator as compared to the business owner, as compared to like, to your point, some of them, it's not that simple either. They may have, if they're really large, they might be a public company or you've got the union trustee business. Well, now who's the customer, you know, and on and on, and let alone the employees, quite frankly. Yeah, and that's, uh, that, that, I know that's the other answer to that question potentially. So um, what do you see as the big challenges for folks working as uh, brokers today? Ooh. Okay. Well, I always like answering challenge questions with a double-edged sword, sort of, because it's that old one side's a challenge, the other side, if you flip your perspective, it's an opportunity. Um, and, and there's no question that short-term COVID has created some challenges and opportunities. There's some, and we're in the, the middle of it now, you know, as a result of things that happened on claims and premium credits, et cetera. It's creating some some difficulties in terms of analyzing renewals, especially on health and dental. Um, that's just sort of a, a functional but real challenge that advisors have. I see on the CGIB channel. <laughs> Does anybody know how to explain this now or what happened? <laughs> and especially because every insurer kind of approached it differently. It's yeah, there was a lot of systems challenges around that one, and uh, we were a little more fortunate ourselves because we, without getting too technical, we literally gave a rate reduction you know, like the 50% credit on dental for however many months, et cetera. So it means that within our system, as it produces renewals or the customer advisor wants to check the claims experience, it's actually accurate. And that's not the case for most of the, the insurer systems because of how I think it was more systems challenges that led to that. Anyway, maybe that's one of those advantages to a third-party administrator. Um, 
I'd say another thing, but interesting enough, this hasn't transpired yet, but we're still early days. There's been a lot of talk about sort of a disability tsunami, you know, coming down the pipe as a result of COVID. Um, again, we were um, circling uh, with our with Empire Life, who does our disability recently as last week. And you know, if you heard that sound, it was me knocking on wood. Um, and we haven't seen it yet, or even lead indicators on short-term disability. So that's probably a good sign. Um, again, government intervention and programs might be delaying some of that, but so far, yeah, I haven't seen that. The reality is, depending on the nature of the block of business the advisor has, and same with us, like our fortunes go with our customers' fortunes. So if you had a lot of exposure to industries, say retail or restaurant, unfortunately, that are being harder hit, you're probably seeing more of that impact. I know talking to some advisors, they have had more, say, like manufacturing or high tech, um, et cetera, and they're seeing their business go up because some of those industries are uh, have grown through COVID, interestingly enough, um, whether they pivoted their business models or otherwise. Uh, I'd say the other one that advisors, and again, you know, Jason, we're all in this giant Petri dish together right now. Um, and a lot of them I've heard say uh, they're finding it very difficult to prospect at this time and develop new relationships r remotely or otherwise. And, and, I, and I, you know, I could see that being a difficulty. Um, for the most part, uh, advisors we talked to have said they've managed to adapt to the customer service, the renewal deliveries. In fact, remember one in the summer, he's going to have a golf or two, <laughs> said, you know, it's wonderful, right? Because he has this large block of association business throughout BC that uh, he would have had to take you know, many days, if not weeks, to travel around and meet with all these important customers. So because you couldn't do that, like imagine trying to do this if COVID didn't exist. Those customers might challenge them saying, why aren't you coming to see us? Like kind of thing. But because we're all in the same boat together, uh, I, I know we got a lot more golf in, so that was good for him. But other advisors were better prepared. There's our friend that you know, Chris Gorey, out of Toronto. I say out of Toronto, but who knows where Chris is at any given point in time, um, you know, and still able to build business. He is focused on the tech space. Um, but he built practices long before COVID that probably allowed him to take advantage more so than some other advisors. Um, I, I'd say longer term, and this is not COVID, but I think COVID has accelerated some of this. You know, it wasn't that long ago that the term, you know, like robo-advisor was this boogeyman kind of terminology in our, our industry and robots are going to you know, replace our jobs. There, there is a fun website, by the way. So if you have kids that are school age and trying to contemplate, you know, other than video games, what career they want to get into down the road, uh, it's called willrobotstakemyjob.com. And, and you can actually type in, uh, I use this in a presentation. So I think a lot of people know that my wife and I work together. She's one of our underwriters. And, and I cheekily used it in a presentation a year ago. Because if you type in underwriter, into that, it's like 99% and it says you're doomed. <laughs> but I think what's interesting is, so again, if you go back whenever that was, three or four years ago, and I think we heard about it more in the money product side of the business, but, you know, robo advice, you know, everybody's going to want to just, they don't want to talk to a human. They want, you know, the computer to figure it all out for them. Well, that hasn't transpired. Um, they certainly picked up some business, but very small. Um, uh, there was an MDRT survey, actually, I think about a little over a year ago. And what was interesting is, um, you know, the context was asking, and it was American, but I think the results would be similar in Canada, saying, you know, for your, it was more financial advising, but I think the analogy holds here. Uh, you know, do you want your advice to come from a human or are you comfortable with, you know, a robot notionally? And the, the vast majority, I think it was high 80%, said human for the advice. But, and this is sort of the, the challenge and opportunity for advisor, I think, the kicker was an even higher percentage, 95%, I think it was, said their expectation is that the advisor and firm or whatever they deal with is technologically savvy, right? And has processes and tools and what have you in place to make it an effective and frictionless um, process of the human advice, right? So it's more about empowering or enabling the advice of the human as opposed to replacing it. 
Um, so, but, but the cautionary tale, I think is if you just take the first piece and go, Oh, you know, robots aren't a threat. I'll be fine. Right. But you're cuddling with your VCR, then, you know, you probably have to rethink it. I guess on that note, how much does uh, benefits by design get involved in, let's say the uh, interface, either that the broker is going to present to their client or that your interface with the broker? Yeah, more than we used to, you know, with the broker's uh, blessing. Um, and yeah, we certainly try, so say we're recommended on a case, then absolutely we'll go to the advisor and say, we've got a team now that can sort of take over the enrollment process. We have full online e-enrollment capabilities, including for beneficiaries. Um, and some degrees were, I think, further ahead than some of the insurers on this. And, and often, I don't mean just benefits by design, but TPAs are often pushing our insurer partners on adoption um, of some of these uh, these tools and so on. Um, so we're more than happy to then become as client facing as the advisor will allow us to be, um, to assist with those processes. Again, never to replace the advice piece, but also to have our brand a little more, you know, sort of out there. And we've even enabled certain um, like lead generation type opportunities. So we launched a new website, for example, about uh, four months ago, I guess now. And the first thing you see, and it was really reframed to be more speaking to both advisors and employers out there in Canada, and to some degree working Canadians in general. Whereas before we always had this very hypersensitive um, advisor filter mentality, right? And, and again, the clarity is we're not going to be going direct to employers, but I think our value prop and our communication was too conditioned and filtered by that hypersensitivity. Uh, and in fact, what we've been able to do, so when you go to our, our landing page of our website now, there's actually this uh, sort of questionnaire type thing that an employer can complete um, that you know asks for their perception on certain things and risk and choice and et cetera. Um, it doesn't output a plan design, right? But then at the end says, you know, if you're interested in getting a report, you know, and there's a hook to this, obviously, please type your information in here and somebody reach out to you. Now, our objective is to pre-qualify that lead. And then depending on those factors, geography, et cetera, we will then spin it out to one of our partner advisors. Nice. Like that seems like uh, a nice value add and uh... Of course, nobody ever minds a qualified lead, right? Now, maybe for your own business. So you talked about this before about, uh, let's say, this custom-built product shelf. And if we rewind 10, 15, 20 years, uh, you'd find, I think, insurers, especially in the small group space, were very limited in their ability to be flexible. That's fair? Right. I think today we find more flexibility from insurers in the small group space. Yeah, to some degree. And even in our case, there's only so far you can would want to push that flexibility for, um, you know, there's certain efficiencies. You know, if everybody has a custom plan design at eight employees, then probably nobody's going to make any money. And you'll probably disappoint the customer, quite honestly, um, as well. I think that's a good point. I think that a lot of times we have this sort of vision of like a full-on cafeteria style plan at the eight employee group. and it really, I think no matter how good the technology gets, I just don't know that it's viable. Well, yeah, because to your point, Jason, like even if the technology works well for onboarding and paying claims and what have you, you know, what does the communication process look like inside an eight employee group? They don't have an HR lead. And so you, you need often certain competencies within the organization to accommodate that, let alone more importantly, what is it the employer is wanting to solve in those cases. Like what we tend to find is that when they're really, really small, there's some blend between personal and selfish, but not in a bad way for like the business owner and his or her family and so on um, type of stuff, as well as then as they get bigger, a growing, I want to take care of my people. And then that begins to evolve. And these are all like added on to um, you know, sort of this attract uh, and retain, compete, be an employer of choice. You know, maybe it starts to add a wellness flavor and on and on goes 
you know, sort of the list. On that note of introducing technology, of course, we have tons of uh, companies that really are more tech companies, uh, League, Rise, Collage, uh, Humi, I'm not sure who else I'm missing off that list, now playing in the benefit space. Can you talk a little bit about where they fit in? Yeah, um, I, I think there's space for for all of them to some degree, even though just statistically some will get bought, some will change, and, and many already have. I think that the league is almost the most interesting one to me because kind of akin to that, you know, will robots take my job uh, thing. It's been interesting to watch how they've um, uh, like flip-flopped or sort of changed their perspective on the value of uh, advisor and distribution over the years. Because when they first came to market, uh, however many years ago that was now, and they had a, you know, it's, it's a, you know, sort of a defined contribution model for the most part, uh, you know, health spending account and wellness accounts have evolved now and some insurance. And I think if they still do, they were partnering with RBC on like life and disability and, and so on. But the, the key point being that when it comes to distribution, they were, yeah, I'm making, I'm using creative license here, but sort of advisors are dinosaurs. You don't need them. Uh, we'll sell direct. And I think back to the, infamous Zenefits quote from that guy in the US, which was, I don't want to say league is as Zenefits, but it was that famous, we're going to drink your milkshake, you know, quote from Conrad Parker, that was his name. Yeah, goodness knows where he is now. And off they went. And then however long after that, a year or two, we, start, we started hearing, huh, now league is apparently reaching out to advisors and saying, you know, limited partnerships, you know, distributors for geographic areas, advice is good. Let's try that. Okay. And I think uh, advisors who jumped into those had a healthy degree of skepticism. Um, but nonetheless, they started doing some of that. And then summarily, yeah, my dates may be wrong here, but a year or whatever after that, out comes this letter to all those advisors from League saying, no, 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 we were right the first time. You're all dinosaurs. We're going to, you know, we're no longer partnering with advisors. And then they got very enamored with the US, which maybe is a good strategy. Um, so I only raise that as an example of, and you, know, you can almost go through the entire list of the ones you've named and say how they've changed their views on distribution. The technology is the technology, right? And some are better than others would be my assessment. But, and then you do have to go up channel and say, well, who owns them and what's the long game? And like a good example would be Rise. We actually had them present to our TPAC board a couple of weeks ago. And, and thankful they did because... The fellow presenting, really a uh, good guy, like he knew he was some degree going into the lion's den, right? And he and I talked about it transparently before. I said, no, I'm happy to share and never know where the space is going to go. But they're basically Sun Life, right? And maybe that's a great strategy between Rise and Sun Life, right? And he was very transparent in saying, like, our resources and our process and our efforts are going into integrating with Sun Life. And that makes sense. Right. So, so I think the challenge at times for advisors in that space is, do I need one? How much do I need to understand of the different offerings? Um, as you may know, there was a benefits breakfast session, they're called at about 150, but it wasn't a BBD event, but one of our team members in Blake Waddell out of Ontario helped organize it. And they had five of these present their YS piece. Right. And I don't think it's possible for an advisor to partner, certainly with all five, let alone be aware of all the offerings. But I think you do have to have a certain level of awareness of what they do and, you know, but, but focus on the client. It's, it is interesting. It's, a, it's such a space that's gone through a lot of I don't know, evolution or uh, reversion maybe in this last 10 years. So I find it, uh, it's a hard place to get a grip on what exactly is happening. Yeah. Yeah. yeah great. <laughs> and I don't have the crystal ball where it's going. Now you had mentioned before uh, dealing with COVID and you were good enough not to get into any overly technical details, but, um, and you talked about, of course, uh, BBD uh, having uh, just flat premium reduction on health and dental Anything else you see out of COVID that you find interesting or noteworthy? No, I think, you know, again, the, some of the 
sort of macro level things are going to continue to uh, evolve. I think it certainly has appropriately amplified mental health, you know, as a, as a key issue that that was coming for a number of years, like in a good way, like destigmatization and more tools, et cetera. Um, but no doubt, uh, many Canadians are dealing with some real challenges, like I think appropriately, but you know, our health authority here in BC announced yesterday that, uh, of course they don't say, you know, Santa stay home, Christmas is canceled, but, um, but effectively, right. And I, you know, I can only imagine as we're in these, you know, sort of, uh, shorter days and, you know, colder, darker, et cetera, it's going to be a tough time for a lot of people. So therefore making accessible as many tools as possible and reach outs, whether through benefits or government programs, I think is critically um, important. I think COVID has, you know, shone more of a beacon on that. That's a bit of a pun because Beacon's one of the most providers apparently went public soon too. Oh, that's right too. Um, and have you seen EAP usage come up here? Yeah, as I mentioned before, we partner with uh, Humanicare. And what was really interesting, Jamie Marcellus, who's the president there, um, now the data was at that time only up until about August. He did a, a presentation for us in September. And what was interesting, what they found was in the early days of COVID, certainly the calls were up, but they were mostly informational calls. Like, where do I get X or access as opposed to true counseling? Um, type of, of interactions. And his belief was that the fairly rapid government programs played a role in sort of deferring some of that. I think the other thing too, like, you know, he made the, and he wasn't being tongue in cheek and was being quite serious that if you imagine everybody for the most part is at home and remote and what have you. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest challenges, especially when there's financial difficulties and other things is, is marital problems. And he said, like, you can imagine if both spouses are now at home, how do you, you know, reach out to your AP to have like a counseling call because I'm not happy with my relationship, <laughs> like practical stuff. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Well, and then certainly later on, like as you got into the summer months, it returned to more um, normal levels. But interestingly enough, we didn't see a, uh, a spike, like, uh, you know, dramatically higher. Um, that said, we're certainly doing a lot of outbound communication to plan members to say, you know, if there's ever a time, like, you know, please do reach out and utilize your, uh, your EAP program. It's interesting because that runs counter to, I guess, my expectation, but you're right. There's a bunch of other stuff happening concurrent to that. It's not like EAP is the only thing people have access to. Yeah. Like I think government actually did a reasonably good job. I had certainly a little more, a little more of a BC lens on this, but, um, you know, as we looked at other problems, like even bringing like telehealth to bear relatively quickly, um, you know, certainly in BC and Alberta and Ontario, uh, other certain provinces have been a little less available, but you, know, you can access your doctor appointments now publicly funded through some very good platforms. Um, and I think that's an interesting evolution that's happening too, which is, so I have probably at least three or four here in BC where you're accessing through a private vendor, whether it be Babylon, which is TELUS or Maple or um, Teladoc, I think is another one. And then there's a number in Ontario as well. So where you may have more of a, a privately um, provided portal, but it's being funded by public dollars for the um, the appointment. Okay, yeah, that's, that's it. It's a sort of a hybrid model there, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, I guess my final question here, we talked a little bit about flexibility earlier. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about uh, voluntary benefits and the role you see those fitting in uh, benefits plans today. Yeah, um, I think there's an enormous opportunity um, you know, for context. Uh, so I'm a member of KALU, the Conference of Advanced Life Underwriting, and I moderated a, a virtual panel. Uh, this was now back in October. And we had a number of very uh, knowledgeable people on. So we had Michael Perry, who's the VP. Sorry to all these people if I get their titles wrong. Um, but the, the top guy in group, put it that way, at Empire Life. Uh, we had uh, the same fella from uh, Sun Life, uh, as well as a representative from uh, Munich Re. We're doing some interesting things, and uh, we were a huge reinsurance company. Um, and so, 
you know, from what the early days of what we've started doing, and we've run a number of voluntary CI or critical illness campaigns and some reasonably good um, uptake. But you know, to your question about flexibility, so Sanofi is a great source for this. So there's the Sanofi Healthcare Study, which has been published for the last 15 years or so. And more recently, they've been asking plan members or perception and the employers, the plan sponsors, around sort of choice and often it's encapsulated by about healthcare spending accounts or this type of thing. And certainly a growing demand for flexibility. You know, sometimes there's a bit of a, do you understand what you're asking for, but still. Um, and also how plan members perceive their benefits program when there is or is not a healthcare spending account. And they put a noticeably higher um, positive perception on their program when it has healthcare spending accounts, a degree of choice, you know, et cetera. Uh, I do think there is significant opportunity and unmet need in Canada for insurance. You know, it's interesting that certain LIMRA, the Life Insurance um, Marketing Something Association, um, <laughs> where all the insurers talk about their sales results and so on. Uh, you know, insurance uh, ownership in Canada, if I'm remembering correctly here, peaked around 2003, and I think it was around 79% or so on a household basis. And it's actually declined over the years. Um, so that would tend to, you know, if we believe there's a value of insurance, um, that there is a degree of unmet need out there. And I think certainly the workplace as an avenue to serve that and do it appropriately, you know, appropriate privacy and consent type of approaches, but also enabling data, you know, could be very effective. Um, so an example of that, that certainly, you know, organizations like ours and insurers are thinking of, if not doing, is so if we know, let's say, Jason, you were a, uh, the primary employee of one of our programs and we knew you just had a new child. Right. And again, with all those other appropriate things in place said, oh, you got to manage the creepy factor of this, obviously. Um, but, you know, did you know that as a member of the, the you know, ABC Companies Benefits Program, you have preferred access to, you know, what might be a slightly more appropriate offering for you with that knowledge? Right. Rather than just sort of the, you know, spray and pray kind of approach to, you know, marketing everything under the sun. Of approach and uh, and I think you know again our early tests of this from an uptake from plan members would suggest they do see value. Um, so I think technology can further enable this. There'll be that interesting question again, depending on the advisor perspective of do they need to control that part of the process or partner appropriately to uh, to execute on that. It's interesting and yeah, that's a nice example of a sort of custom build, right? Where my, my benefits need change depending on my exact circumstances and certainly uh, opportunity there for a, a shop like yours that, you know, I think is going to lead the way in that ability to customize appropriately. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And this isn't a plug for, for me and agree, but it's, a, it's an interesting observation of how they're coming to market, recognizing this, this need, because again, they're a huge reinsurance company. They're not and can't be a direct writer. They'd be competing with their own customers and insurers. But what they did is they developed a platform called Parachute, you know, which would say, okay, if uh, you want to have, so say in our world, Industrial Alliance Critical Illness on that platform, and maybe somebody else for pet insurance, I don't know, you know, on and on, you know, it's an enablement tool again, as opposed to competing. Interesting. Um, any last minute thoughts, Mike, anything I should have asked you about that I did not? No, I think we've covered soup to nuts as my papa used to say. Um, but, uh, no, I enjoyed the, the opportunity and here's to a happy new year and a, uh, a wonderful 2021. Perfect. Thanks so much. Appreciate your, uh, your wealth of knowledge and your willingness to share Mike and have a wonderful day. Thank you. You as well. The number for today's episode is seven. The number for today's episode is seven. 
to obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also, you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there, and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, quite a few links that you'll see in the show notes. Mike referenced lots of stuff there that's worth following up on. Uh, my personal favorite, willrobotstakemyjob.com. Join us again in uh, two weeks' time when we'll be talking with Mark about retirement income planning. A few people help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing and music and a bunch of the technology stuff in the background. Maria Nguyen gets all of our various accreditations done through the uh, various accrediting bodies. And Colton Nierbeski and his team make sure that the word gets out. They take care of the marketing and all that goes along with that. <music>